This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. For the past 15 years, I've been helping children and adults meet their full potential. On our podcast, we're going to share some tips and tricks with you and some of my knowledge on how you can reach your potential and your family's goals. Each week, we'll be highlighting different specialists that can help you understand human development and how to assist your family in living their best lives. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. Hi, welcome to Ask the Therapist on J-Tribe Radio. I'm Khafia Sorokka, and with us today uh, on the program is Shmuel Fischler. Shmuel is a licensed clinical social worker and supervisor in Maryland and a certified cognitive therapist through the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. He owns and directs a private practice specializing in anxiety, spectrum disorders, depression, and body-focused repetitive behaviors. Shmuel previously worked in the nonprofit community world for Hana, a local organization working with survivors of abuse. He also is spearheading the Now You Know initiative, which we will talk more about later on in the program. Welcome, Shmuel, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so today we're going to be talking about OCD and particularly the ways that it can um, express itself or, or um, be, you know, present itself in our community and the from community. Um, and you have worked pretty extensively with individuals who suffer from OCD. Could you tell us a little bit about your own background in working in this area? Sure. So uh, years ago when I first got into the field and I was working in a adolescent clinic and in the school system, the, the Jewish school system, and I was looking to progress and further my training and education, and I went to University of Pennsylvania and went through an intensive uh, training in OCD with uh, Dr. Edna Foa, which is sort of like the, the godmother of, of treatment for OCD and, and other things. And from there, I got connected with a wonderful organization called the IOCDF, which is the International OCD Foundation. And for anyone who's interested, they have tremendous resources online and go to their annual conferences and get further specific trainings and different components of OCD through their own institutes. And once I sort of got identified as someone who is treating OCD, sort of uh, it was a magnet for uh, people who were struggling with OCD. And thank God over the years I've been able to become quite familiar with it and all the different nuances and the different ways that, you know, it presents itself. Years ago when I first got into the field, I was working in a adolescent clinic and it was uh, pretty general as far as what came in, and I was also working in the school system. And then I was looking to advance and progress my training and education, and I went for a intensive training in the University of Pennsylvania with, uh, with uh, Dr. Edna Foa, who's sort of the godmother of uh, anxiety treatment and exposure. And from there, I also got connected to a wonderful organization called the IOCDF, which is the, I, which is the International OCD Foundation. And for anyone who's interested, they have tremendous resources online. And I go to their annual conferences, which are phenomenal, and then took some advanced trainings through their institutes. 
uh, for like the different sort of subsets of how OCD and related disorders present themselves. And once, once I was started getting involved in that and was sort of identified as someone who treats OCD, then it sort of I started being sort of a magnet of people who struggle with it. And thankfully, I, I've become you know quite familiar with it and sort of the nuances and the different ways it presents itself. And so that's that's a big portion of what I do now. Yeah, and um, we use the term OCD pretty loosely sometimes, right? Like I feel like, you know, if somebody is very particular about things or likes things very neat and organized and orderly, you know, they'll say, I'm OCD about this. It's kind of like, you know, almost like a phrase that you can use to describe your or, you know, your desire to have things a certain way or, you know, but in terms of OCD, um, the illness, could you talk a little bit more or tell us, you know, what it is um, and, you know, what it is comprised of and, and what you see in, you know, folks who have OCD? Sure, I'd be happy to. So just just a note on, on the sort of usage of the word OCD, of the term OCD, I, I think this this whole uh, episode would be worth it if at the very least people can have a little bit of a sensitivity and it's thrown around in a way that for people who truly struggle with OCD and 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 it is a, a real struggle it's, a, it's it's people suffer tremendously so to hear people uh, almost uh, flippantly and I don't think people mean it intentionally but flippantly to use OCD for something that someone you know particular about is I think is is a is a little unfair to those who really truly struggle with OCD. And again, it's part of just understanding what OCD is and what OCD is not. Now, mm-hmm. as far as the components of, of what OCD is, so it, it's it, it's really we can we can put it fairly simply. OCD is when someone who has thoughts that come into their head and they're not wanted. So we would, we would refer to them as intrusive. And when these thoughts come, and typically the thoughts are ones that start with a what if, or a maybe, or a could be, that raises doubt and uncertainty. And because these thoughts come in, a person becomes either anxious, uncomfortable, sometimes disgusted. And they're very, very, very uncomfortable, and they, it's very, very hard to sit with that. And because of those thoughts being there and the levels of anxiety increasing, they, the thoughts are telling them, hey, you could do something about this. You can neutralize the power of those thoughts by doing something. And that doing something is referred to the compulsions or rituals. So they have the obsession, which is the thought. They do something in order to neutralize the power of the thought, and that tends to repeat itself because it actually works temporarily. And so I repeat that again and again and again because I get some relief, and then the thought comes back, and then I want relief again. And it's sort of this pattern of, rituals and rules in someone's head that they feel compelled that they have to do in order to not get overly anxious. Right. So they start to do this as a way to not feel as anxious anymore. You know, it's a temporary relief from that anxiety that's coming to them. 
That's exactly what it is. It's a strong relationship between what I'm doing in order to neutralize the power of the thought that is making me so uncomfortable and so anxious. Correct. Um, so one of, the, one of the categories of OCD that I wanted us to talk about is um, the way that it manifests itself in um, either religious practices or rituals or in, you know, in someone's thought process. And um, I'm just wondering what you've seen in terms of some of the individuals that have come through your doors um, and the people who struggle specifically with, um, you know, OCD that's of a religious nature, that's kind of centered around religious ideas and rituals and things like that. Sure. So the, the subset of OCD that you're referring to is called scrupulosity, obviously from the word scrupulous. And something to stress, because this is a common uh, belief or question that comes up, is does religion cause OCD? And unequivocally, the answer is no. Um, however detailed or rule-oriented a religion is, and Judaism is certainly full of that, and it might be ripe for it, but it does not cause it. There's no causal relationship. Um, I know that actually back when I went to University of Pennsylvania, there was a Jewish person who presented, a religious Jewish person who presented research uh, that was done to actually uh, see if there is a relationship, and there is not. What happens is, is that OCD tends to latch itself onto something that is valuable to a person. So uh, health might be valuable to someone, and so it will latch itself and dig itself into that so that the person will obsess about the health of themselves, their family, so on and so forth. Uh, it, could be, it could really be uh, about anything. OCD, I find people who have OCD are some of the most creative people around, and, and then their OCD is very creative, and it can really come in many different flavors, I call it. So when it comes to scrupulosity, so it, it's latching onto not necessarily religion. It could be religious practice, but it's a, it could be about morals, about right or wrong, heaven and hell, just doing the right thing, spirituality. But certainly it's not uncommon for it to embed itself in religious practice and, and any religion. So, but specifically, and I've seen people of different religions who it, it could apply to and, and manifest itself, but if we're focusing on Jews, especially from Jews, then it's certainly ripe for it to embed itself in religious practice. So some examples might be, take any, any, any halacha or any behavior that someone is doing. Something as simple as washing Nathila Sedayim in the morning or before eating bread. So... Think of it as any doubt that will pop into someone's head. So did I wash it correctly? Did I wash my whole hand? Did I have the right kavana or intention while I made the bracha or while I washed my hand? So did I do that right? If I am praying, if I am davening, did I have the right intention for every single word when I said it? Did I enunciate all the words correctly? And then you can take it 
those are, I would say, those are maybe the more straightforward ones with screw velocity. And then, like I said, it can get really creative, and then it could go into, well, am I really doing what God intended me for, for me to do in this world? Am I going to go to Gan Eden or Gehenna? How do I make sure that I'm doing what I, what I should be doing? And then to take it even more, uh, I guess, uh, unique in some of the presentations, it could be, it could be, am I, I've had clients who wondered if they're really um, being Oved of desire. Are they being uh, idolaters by, how could they possibly be an idolater? Well, I have a coworker who has a little Buddha on her desk and sometimes I would, you know, move in that direction. So am I really nodding my head and bowing down towards that Buddha? Now, of course, I don't want to be an idolater, but maybe, maybe I am. Or it can come up uh, plenty with kashras, uh, milk and meat, basar v'cholov, maybe something touched. So if you, if we, if really to, to simplify it a little bit, for people who are who are listening, it's really any question, any doubt. And the truth is, is that in anyone's kitchen, it doesn't make a difference if you what your level of uh, your value of kashras or your stringency or what shita you you buy or what kind of, you know, kashras symbols you abide by, you, you, there's always going to be questions and there's always going to be doubt. So if a person can't sit and tolerate not knowing for sure, for sure, 100,000%, which none of us can, then it's going to be a real struggle for them in, in many, many areas of Yiddishkeit. Yeah. And what would be, so, you know, what would you say to somebody who's wondering, like, you know, is this just me trying to really, you know, um, practice Judaism to the best of my ability, or is this something else? You know, what would be some way for them to, you know, know or be able to tell that maybe there's something else going on here? Okay, so so great question, very common question, and I will point out, even in the question that you asked, and I would say this to a client too, is notice that how you asked it is a person asking, well, how do I know? And therein lies the issue. Therein lies the challenge because none of us, you, I, I don't know, you, Reb Chaim Kaunievsky, whoever you want to pick, can't really, really know. If we looked in the mirror and we really, really asked, well, is this really, really me sincerely wanting to be more, uh, more from or strict or hum or whatever it is, or is it, or is it just a, a thought that's, that's intrusive? So the first thing is, is that we can never really know. So that's, and, and that's the trap that people with OCD sort of fall into, is that's the desire to know. Again, we're trying, they're trying to avoid uncertainty, and they're trying to know when, in fact, in a, in, can truly, really, really know. So then, so now the question is, okay, so now what? Where do we draw the line? And the easiest answer that I can give people is what I've heard from, 
you know, several other experts, and, and I've gotten experience doing this, is really our goal is to sit with as much uncertainty as another God-fearing, Yerushimayan, Torah-observant Jew that would be somewhere in my spectrum of Judaism. Now, how do I know if, what that is? Because that's going to be the first thing that someone with OCD will say, well, I don't know what someone else would risk they would sit with. And the answer to that is, well, we have to guess. Because, again, we'll never really know. So I, I'm not it's not easy for them, but at the end of the day, the way to do it is to guess. And inherently, I think just about everyone can have a gut feeling and know, well, someone without any, ask the rub for the 10th time if maybe, maybe the milk in my fridge dripped down and touched the chopped liver that's there, and I'm, am I allowed to eat it? And even though I asked once, Maybe he didn't really understand my question, and therefore I'm asking again so quickly. I have to force myself to ask. I have five seconds to answer the question. Would someone without OCD ask this question again? And I have to guess. And so I guess that someone else wouldn't. And so they're, they're, that's like a little litmus test of knowing that this is more of an intrusive thought rather than a real sincere uh, way to you know, be more connected to my Yiddish guy. Yeah. And, and so it sounds like part of what the part of the treatment is also helping the individual to understand, you know, what is an intrusive thought and when am I having them? That's, that's true. So there's, there's sort of two components when it comes to the treatment and, and the treatment if I can, you know, spend a minute for a second on what treatment looks like so we can mm-hmm. sort of get into that. The, the, the gold standard of treatment for OCD is something called ERP, which is exposure and response prevention. So what we're doing is, and, and I'll get to your question in just a half, a half a minute as far as, like, understanding what's an intrusive thought. The, so ERP, exposure and response prevention, is intentionally inviting that uncertainty in and then not doing anything about it. So, for example, let's take the, the kosherist example. So it would be in the fridge to intentionally put the bottle of milk on the same shelf as the chopped liver, even though I'm going to, it's going to raise doubt in my mind and it's, I'm going to get in my level of discomfort is going to keep on increasing and then not do anything about it and sit with it. And what will happen is a couple of things is one is the more and more I do that and invite that in, the more I'll be able to tolerate not knowing. And even more importantly is I'm going to slowly learn that either whatever I'm worried about happening doesn't happen or it's not as bad as I think it's going to be, or I can really handle it more than, more than I thought. Now, to get back to your question as far as, well, part of the treatment is underst- trying to understand what an intrusive thought is, it really starts with the, the so, so if anyone's familiar with um, 
with cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a certain idea of reframing thoughts and, and, and uh, trying to make them somewhat more helpful um, for them. And so the restructuring or reframing of thoughts when it comes to OCD, there is a small component of it, but, I, but really it's not the main component of it. Um, it, it's changing, it starts with changing our relationship with, relationships with thoughts. And what I mean by that is, is that people with not just OCD, with, with anxiety too, um, they, they have a very, I would call it an enmeshed relationship with their thoughts. They, if a thought pops into their head, then they feel, well, obviously, if it pops into my head, there must be truth to it. I must do something about it. How could I let it just sit there and do nothing? It's an overvaluation of a thought. Again, just because I think something, if I, if, I, if I think that I'm Superman, doesn't mean that I go to the top of my and, and say, up, up, and away. I mean, <laughs> I would, that would be the end of Shmuel Fischler. So... But there's an overvaluation, and it becomes that's what makes it very difficult to ignore because it's 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 invaluable. It's it's worth the gold and silver. How could I let it go of it? And so that's one of the first steps is changing our relationship with thought. And just because I think it doesn't mean I have to do something about it. Now, as far as understanding if it's intrusive, well, I'm asking myself, do I want this thought to be here? So if take a, a more classic OCD presentation about contamination. So if I'm preparing dinner for my children and I have to uh, wash my hands between every single step, and that's 50 steps of touching something, of touching the fridge door, because I'm afraid that maybe somehow the food's going to get contaminated, that I'm giving my kids so now the question is, do I, want, do I really want this thought? And the answer is, I don't want the thought because it's, it's creating a tremendous disturbance in my life. So really most of us can answer, do I want this thought? And if I, and it's actually getting in the way of what I want, then, then it's intrusive. If, if I keep on having thoughts when I put filling on in the morning, is it in the right place? And because of that, I wind up barely davening because I keep on going and checking to see if my spilling is in the right place. And it's actually counterproductive of me being a better Jew and being a more adherent Jew, a more observant Jew, because it's taking away from my whole davening. Then I don't want that thought. I want to be able to daven. I want to be able to participate in what's valuable to me as a from Jew. So, most, most people, even if they have OCD, they're able to observe themselves and say, you know what, I, I don't want this thought because it's really disturbing me. Yeah. Um, and when you, when you start to talk to a client about this, you know, the treatment, what is the reaction that you typically get, right? You're basically asking them to do the thing that they're terrified is going to lead to... Um, you know, some, some major, majorly bad catastrophic thing happening to them. Yeah, you're right. So you, you, you answered it. They're, they're terrified. Uh, it, it is, and, and, and it is terrifying to them because it's, I'm asking them 
And I'm asking them basically to do something that's completely counterintuitive to what they've been doing and almost training themselves for years and years, and sometimes it's many, many years. And, it, and unfortunately, unfortunately, it can take a long time and, and going through multiple therapists before they get to a therapist who has had particular training uh, to treat OCD. So that's why mm-hmm. it's really important when I'm bringing it up with someone, and I, I have an appreciation that it is very scary. Yeah, right. You can, you can the, empathize the gra- with that. Yeah. Oh, no question. No question. It's like it, it, would be for, it would be for you and I to, or someone, anyone, uh, you know, cross the, cross the highway with your eyes closed. That, that's, what it, that's what it feels like. And so it's, right. really, it's really scary. That's why it's really important to spend time with the psychoeducation and the understanding of the mechanics of OCD. And then, and, and when, when you explain it well, usually when I, I, I can only speak for myself, when you're explaining it, and because I've been fortunate to become really familiar with it, they usually are nodding their head when I'm describing it. Like, oh, yeah, this is, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. And so they, they start to buy into, okay, he understands what it's like to have OCD, even though I've, I, I don't have it, but I have an appreciation for it. And then we, we are doing an, an, uh, an understanding of why we're going to do what we do. And because, because the truth is, is that, and, and this is something I think is, that's powerful, is that I, say you're the client. I say, you know what, you I really because I have no more confidence, no more certainty that that tomorrow that tomorrow uh, I'm going to die. I'm going to go in my car tonight and get hit by a drunk driver. I have no more certainty, and this is very timely that we're doing this now because we're coming up on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and there's a, there's a heightened sense of um, our purpose in this world and are we doing the right thing. And, and the truth is, the, the real truth is, is that I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I'm no different than you in knowing if, if, if Hashem is, is happy with me, is satisfied with me. I don't know what my judgment is going to be. I really don't know. We're, we're in this together. I don't know. And the invitation is, is that I'm asking you because, and, and I, let me take a, a, like a, 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 a second here. It's very important, and this doesn't just apply to OCD. It's super important to be able to establish why they want to do this. There has yeah. to be a very clear, I, this is not just OCD, it has to be a very clear motivation and, and goal of why do I want to do this. And when we say why do I want to do this, it's not just, well, I want to feel better, I want less anxiety. There has to be sort of, it could be, I want to be a, a more present mother, wife, husband. I want to be able to focus on my learning. I want to be able to be connected to God more. I want to be able to pursue this career. It's affecting my job. I want to try this and that. There's so many things, but that is the real why. So really establishing that. And then I'm inviting them to join me and everybody else in this world that is understandably is unpredictable, 
unknown, crazy, uncertain, and we're going to be in this world together. And so when we're establishing what's our why, we're in this together, understanding that this type of treatment is, you know, is empirically based, it's had, it's had lots of success, it's, nothing's perfect, but it has lots of success, and understanding is that we're going to experiment with this, and we're going to stick with this and do something counterintuitive to what you've done until now, and you're going to have a new relationship with thoughts, and we, cre- we don't start at something that's the most intense. So, you know, we're not starting at the top of the totem pole of what is the most scary thing in the world for them. We're starting somewhere lower, and once they see some success of being able, you know, hey, this, this, this some of the lower-hanging fruits, so to make this real for people listening, so say it's about uh, washing the Tilosidayim. So say they, right now they come in and they started off with, it, in the morning it takes them uh, 10 minutes to wash. They're washing, you know, they're, you know, three on each hand, but it, they're doing that, you know, four different times and they're doing it really, really slowly. So we would change it up. How would, how do we introduce some uncertainty to that? Well, we could time it so that they're a little bit under pressure so they can't be so sure that they're doing it right. We can limit the amount of times that they're doing it. We could, you could be really creative with it. You could, um, I've done with people where they have to do it blindfolded. So they can't be entirely sure if they're washing exactly correctly. There's different ways of slowly introducing more and more uncertainty. And so once, but they feel so good once they start to see some of the fruits of their labor of, well, I could handle some more uncertainty. Okay, so let's build on that and build on that and build on that. Mm-hmm. So you're slowly building up their tolerance until they can get to a point where they can tackle some of the things that are causing more anxiety. Correct. And I, I just want to add one more thing, and this is an important piece that I, I've learned this more in the last several years, and some of the research they're, they're focusing on this is that it, it has to be – Two things. One is that when we're doing this exposure and building the tolerance, it's 100% correct. But some of the attitude or the approach that I try to encourage is that it's not just tolerance to this specific behavior. So we're just going to use washing hands because that's the example we have. It's not just tolerating not knowing if I'm washing my hands correctly. It's globalizing it. I want not just okay with it. I want to introduce uncertainty. I want to be able to tolerate certain uncertainty in general. It's not because if we leave it just about washing the hands, then we can conquer that. But now I got used to being able to just wash my hands three times instead of 18 times. But then there's the next thing. It's almost like a whack-a-mole. It's like you just, you know, pops up some other uncertainty. Therefore, we need to globalize it as far as, like, I want to invite uncertainty into my life because I want to handle it. And the second thing is that it's really important every time we do it is to pay attention to what my internal prediction was as far as how bad it's going to be, how uncomfortable I'm going to get, how long is it going to last, so on and so forth. And then after I do it, then go back and say, well, was my prediction correct? 
did the bad thing happen? Did, was it as bad? And that, that process of reflecting on what I did is a, treme- a very powerful learning. It has to be a learning, uh, a, a learning moment for them so that they can start to learn that, hey, all these years of me sort of telling myself how it's going to be so bad might not be entirely correct and building from there. Yeah, and, and um, is there a space in all of this? You had mentioned earlier, you know, someone calling the rug, like the 10th time. Is there a space to introduce other people into um, either, you know, someone like Rabbi or family members into what this person is supposed to be doing? Is it something that you so try to engage not- other people into? Yes, and it's a great question. I appreciate that question because it's a very important question. And I will say this, that one of my, um, one of my sort of mentors in the OCD world is, is a fabulous expert in OCD and scrupulosity as well. Um, his name is Meshulam Epstein, and he's in Lakewood, and he works with a lot of uh, Rabbanim, and, and he's sort of, he's, he's, he's been one of my mentors in this. And so the answer is yes and no. So we'll break it into two pieces if I can. One is family, one is family, and one is uh, Rabbanim or some, you know, spiritual figure in a person's life. So let's start with family. So family, certainly, yes, we want them involved because we want them educated. We want them to have an appreciation for what their family member is going through, and it's not just them trying to be difficult. And number two for the family is that we want their response or their role to be helpful and not unhelpful. So we don't, obviously we don't want them to be dismissive of it and say, just stop it. We also don't want them to accommodate. We refer to it as family accommodation, where, say, uh, a parent or a spouse is, uh, they, don't, they don't sort of don't want to deal with the repercussions of, that family member, member becoming so anxious or irritable that they'll just accommodate, they'll, they'll almost enable it, so they'll work around whatever obsessions that person, person has uh, to the point where they're jumping through the same hoops almost as the person with OCD. And that's really not helpful because that's not helping them uh, tolerate uncertainty. It's just accommodating it, and then it's just so it's reinforcing it. So that's really important uh, as far as family involvement, those two pieces, education and understanding how to gradually reduce their family accommodation. And when it comes to Rabbanim or whoever it is as far as like a spiritual figure, so there's, I would say there's a, there's definitely an important role that they play but it has to be with some caution. So first of all, yes, if we can work with Rabbanim and if they don't have a background in understanding OCD to uh, help, help share and educate. And when someone's coming to a Rav, a rabbi, a posek, whoever it is, it can very easily, they can present themselves, like you had mentioned earlier, about, and it can look like I have a sincere desire to find out what the halacha is or improve my, my observance, so on and so forth. And so for if, they, if, they, if they're not familiar with OCD, then they might sort of, you know, fall right into that, not knowing any better. And 
So, and then, but if they are, even if they are familiar, it is helpful to have them involved to sort of get an initial sort of okay as far as, well, my therapist is asking me to do this and this and this, and I think it's a risk of me being Ovid of Adizara or being blasphemous or doing something totally connected to Torah, and then, you know, sort of that initial, okay, you know, this therapist is, it's for your refuah, it's for, you, you could do this, and it has nothing to do with Yiddishkeit, because these thoughts, these thoughts, and if it wasn't clear, clear enough already, it has nothing to do with Frumkite. It has nothing to do with being more religious. These are intrusive thoughts that are latched onto something that's important to you, but they have nothing to do with religion. So involving a, a rug in that way is, I think, is very helpful, and they can reinforce what the clinician is doing as far as this ex- exposure. And you, the caution here is, is that sometimes speaking and asking a rug can actually become a ritual in itself. So if someone tells me, well, I just want to ask my rug this, okay, and then they want to ask the rug again, and then again, and then again, and they're asking their rug questions, you know, 50 times in a month, that's disproportionate and that's not helpful. So working with the rug as far as, a rug actually might be part of an exposure, so we can give almost a together, we'll work on it together and collaborate and agree that we're going to almost give a ration, a quota of shilas that they can ask. And the Rav will then, after that, will say, well, you know, we're going to sit with that because we can't really know. So certainly having the support of a Rav and having initial buy-in but not to the point where getting a rug involved will become a ritual in and of itself because, again, similar to the family accommodation, you can have the rabbi accommodation, which in the the long run is not going to be actually helpful to the person with OCD. Right. Um, And when, when somebody does come to you initially, um, is it at the suggestion of somebody like a rub who's, who's noticed something, or is it something else? What usually brings people through the door? Um, good question. So if we're, if we're focused on scrupulosity, well, in general, let, let's start with the general and then get to the scrupulosity. In, in the general, people with, most people with OCD, I would say 9 out of 10 people with OCD, it's really disturbing to them, and it's really having a major impact on them. So they come and they, they, they really want to help. They're actually pretty motivated. It's, it's, it's upsetting them, and they know that it doesn't really make sense, but they can't ignore it, and they, they, they want to come. When it comes to scrupulosity, it can be a little bit more um, complex and, and gray because of what you said earlier about feeling and believing that hey, this is really, this is me just trying to be a better Jew. So it doesn't necessarily come from themselves. A lot of times it will come from a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it could, it could really damage a relationship to the point where they can't stay married anymore because it, it just has such a, an impact. Plenty of times it will come from a, if someone's in school or yeshiva, 
It will come from a teacher or a revenue or a parent who's concerned about um, what they're doing. I definitely, Rabbanim will send the ones who are uh, more in tune with, you know, mental health and, and which, which a majority of them are and understand OCD, then, yeah, they will, they will send them. So it can come from family, come from schools, come from Rabbanim, and sometimes come from themselves. And what is the reaction when you're talking to somebody about, you know, intrusive thoughts and, and, you know, how it's manifesting itself into their religious life? You know, are they, are they understanding sort of the difference or is it still kind of a challenge to be able to kind of get them on board or, or you know, understanding what you, what you mean? Yeah, you know, I, I will acknowledge that when it comes to some of these uh, intense scrupulosity cases, it, it can be really difficult to, um, you know, to really get them on board because it's very hard for them to differentiate that you're telling me this has nothing to do with Yiddishkeit. Like, I don't believe you. You know, I don't believe you. So, yeah, it, it can be challenging. And then we'll talk about, well, what's the cost of having these thoughts? And it's a little bit of a cost-benefit. Well, you know, I believe it's my Yiddishkeit, but my spouse is ready to divorce me because we can't coexist like this. So and then, then what? Um, but it, it can be really difficult. And, and something that I try to uh, impart to clients that come, even if I personally think that it would be beneficial to them to work on something, I don't see it as my job, as my role as a therapist to tell them, hey, you have a problem and you've got to work on this. And if you don't work on this, this is like your problem and, you know, see ya, this is, you know, but you should really work on this. I don't see that as my job. I think that's unfair. I don't think that's, that's right. I, I will, I'll say something that's not going to sound like very clinical, but it's true is that, you know what, a problem doesn't become a problem until it's a problem. <laughs> and, right. and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it sounds simple enough really, but they, it, they have to get to the point where, you know, I acknowledge that this is hard and I acknowledge that, that it, it, it's, it's not necessarily clear and it feels like you're doing something that's, you know, against your values. But once you're understanding that this is the separation of thought and what you really value and the impact that it has in your life and you're willing to give it a try, so then so let's give it a try. But I, 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 have, I can't say that I've been successful with everybody because sometimes it is really embedded and it's very difficult for them to accept that this is not part of their value of religion and I can't um, I can't force somebody to believe otherwise right um, right and so and I think also it's, it's important to note that you know these intrusive thoughts can manifest themselves in different ways we're just really focused today on you know specifically you know religious thoughts and practices but that you know they can and this is probably something that you see in you know, when it manifests itself in other ways, like, you know, in terms of germs and contamination and things like that, too. It's not, I don't think, necessarily just in terms of, um, you know, religious beliefs and practices and things like that. It, it can be hard, I think, to convince anybody who really holds a very, very strong belief to, to allow for the possibility that, you know, that belief is not, is not true. A thousand percent. So, like, if somebody... If somebody is obsessing, their intrusive thoughts have to do with health. And, well, I'm wondering if this feeling that I have, maybe it means that I have cancer. 
Maybe it means that I have a tumor. Let me go check the doctor. Maybe I'm having a heart attack. And let me go look up online to see the symptoms. WebMD is like the, oh, my gosh. WebMD is the, uh, <laughs> the worst place. Is, is, yeah. For, it, it's like, you know, you can look up, you can look up, uh, you, you can find a symptom for anything. A, a cough is, could be 10 million different diseases. And so, so if I say to them, well, you know, well, don't do that, the, you know, if it's really strongly held belief, so you're telling me not to care about my health? I mean, that they, I might die. And my answer to that is, yeah, I might die also. You know, now I will say, though, that one big difference between something like scrupulosity and other types of OCD is that if, um, if I have a contamination OCD or there's, there's some really, like, interesting types of OCD, if I have harm OCD, harm OCD is the, uh, um, I'm afraid, I have a thought that maybe, and this is going to sound like off the wall to some people, but it feels very real to them. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose control and kill my child. Now, of course, I don't want to kill my child, but I don't know, maybe I'm just going to lose it. And, and so, uh, therefore, I stay away from my child. Or I say I, I throw out all the knives in my house. So something like that, and I'm doing this, I'm saying this to illustrate the difference between other types of OCD and scrupulosity. So we might do an exposure of actually going near your child and actually holding a knife uh, right next to your child in the same room as your child. And let's see what happens. Let's actually, and I will say this, that these people are probably the safest people to be because it bothers them so much because they love their children so much. So, right. These are not people well, who actually want any harm to come to their, their no, children. These, are, no. these it, are intrusive thoughts that are happening, that are it, occurring. Yes. Yes. We should clarify that for people listening. Right. It's people who it's, it's really disturbing because they love their children so much, but they can't get out of their head that maybe, maybe I'm going to lose it. So we would do an exposure like that. You know what? You're going to have your, your baby in their high chair, and you're going to be holding a, uh, the sharpest knife you have in your hand while you're feeding your child. And let's see what happens. And that's an exposure, and they'll sit with that, and they'll be able to see that, in fact, they did not murder their child. However, what makes, what makes um, scrupulosity a little bit more uh, challenging for people is that, well, I don't know if I'm doing what Hashem wants me to do, and I don't know if I'm going to get punished for this. I don't know if I'm going to go to Gehenna. I don't know if this is an Avera. Well, it's pretty hard to sort of test that out. <laughs> it's, it's, you can't, well, let's do this and let's see what happens. Well, what's going to happen? We're not getting struck by lightning. So it, it, that's what makes scrupulosity a little bit more unique is that we can't, well, let's see if you go to get him. You know, come right. back and tell me. <laughs> right, you know, right. We, you you know, can't we test can't out the theory. Right. You cannot. And, and actually... You know, we have to be a little creative in how we do some expo- exposures. So you might do something called, this is something we haven't mentioned yet, when it comes to expo- exposures, there's in vivo exposures, which is the actually doing something, the, the real life, you know, uh, like the, the knife doing something. And then there's something called imaginal exposures, which is using, using our imagination to create an image, an environment, an idea, a, 
and ending a some some conclusion in order to sit with that possibility. So this comes more into play when it comes to something that's not in real life. So if I'm uh, terrified that Hashem is upset at me and I'm going to go to Gehenim and get, you know, all sorts of different punishments in the next world, then we should try together to come up with some sort of narrative, some story to bring up that uncertainty, that imagery, whatever I have in my head, and bring that to the surface and and not do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'll say that I think that anybody engaged in um, – in treatment for OCD is incredibly courageous because what they're doing really is they're facing their fears every single day, really confronting them um, in a very real they, way. Um, and that's, I, that's I, really, really challenging. I agree. They are very brave. And, and I'll, I'll see some really powerful experiences with clients who, you know, I, I appreciate I hope I hope I'm I'm able to convey this clearly. Like I'm not trying to minimize how hard it is for people. It is tremendously hard, and I have such respect and admiration. And I get inspired from clients who who do who are that brave and take that step. And and I couldn't it couldn't feel I couldn't feel happier for people when they get to see the fruits of their labor. And through some of I mentioned earlier about the IOCDF. Uh, annual conferences, which are very, very interesting because it's a conference that's made for people who treat OCD like myself, people who research OCD and related disorders, and also people who have OCD and people and family members of people who have OCD all together in the same place, mixing together in the same workshops and sessions and things like that. And you get to really uh, appreciate, you get to meet these people and they tell their stories and what they've been through, and they're, they're, they're authentic, and they're brave, like you said, and it's, 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 it's quite inspiring because they're, they're, they put themselves out there, and they, to do something that feels so risky um, is, is, is tremendously powerful. And what would you say to people who perhaps are starting this journey or are considering it or are noticing or have family members who have noticed that they're experiencing something like, you know, religious OCD? So probably the most important thing that I would, I would hope that people can, can hear is that a lot of people who have OCD, and certainly when it comes to scrupulosity, is they feel like they are crazy. They feel like these thoughts are just batty and off the wall, and nobody, it's not possible that somebody can understand what I'm experiencing. Nobody else is like this. And probably the most important thing I can say is that they are not alone. There are millions of people with OCD. There are many, many people who have thoughts about religion, um, there are whether, and, and, all, and all the types of OCD, and they are not alone. And there's, if, they, if they could hear from other people. So uh, years ago, now well, not that long, a couple of years ago, I was able to, and I hope to, to restart it, I, especially for the firm community, because I think there's, you know, there's some levels of stigma when it comes to some mental health and, and OCD and so on and so forth. 
I was able to put together a group uh, specifically men from men with OCD. And I think if someone can do things for women too, it's certainly very prevalent. Something we didn't mention earlier was that um, for women, it could really come up with, uh, with uh, Tarasa Meshbacha, uh, Nida, Mikvah. There's actually a tremendous workbook that was written. Um, I don't know the name off the top of my head. Uh, that's specifically for uh, Taras Meshbacha and Mikvah OCD written by somebody in Lakewood and with the help of experts in, in OCD. It's a, it's a very good resource. And so uh, Mikvah attendants and, and Mikvah women also will send people. They'll notice it um, and send people. So we had this group of from men who had OCD, and it was so powerful because I, one of the people in the group was somebody that I work with individually who had scrupulosity, and in all honesty, we weren't that successful. It was just really hard to follow through on doing exposures. And once we were part of a group and he heard from other and saw other men who had it, the, the needle moved a lot further than what we were doing individually. So I think the, the, that message of there are other people, you are not crazy, you are struggling with a mental illness, and it can be helped, and there's other people, I think that's probably one of the most important messages that people starting off could get. Yeah. Uh, and you actually do a lot to uh, promote education around mental health, and you started the Now You Know initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, and, and thank you for allowing me to share about it. I'm, I'm excited about it. It's, it's relatively new. So the, this came about, so the Now You Know initiative idea was, was sort of bouncing around my head for several years, and it came about because I had a client who was really frustrated because they found themselves, this client uh, particularly had a skin-picking disorder, and they had a hard time communicating with friends, coworkers, even her, even her parents, as far as helping them understand what it is and what not to do. People would notice and they would say something. And, you know, some people you could explain it to. Some people you don't want to stop every time and have a whole explanation. But even just being able to, like, tell people, like, don't just, say stop, don't just knock my hand away when you see uh, me uh, picking my face. It's not really going to be really helpful. So it popped into my head is what would be a way to help jumpstart a conversation about something that I'm dealing with? And if I can jumpstart that, then maybe people can be more understanding, they can be more supportive, and, and we can sort of get over that barrier. People feel stigmatized, people feel isolated, and people feel like they can't be vulnerable and they can't share. And once, once I started, like, sharing this idea and I got tremendous positive feedback, all of a sudden there was, like, people had so many different ideas of how to use it. And it's well beyond OCD, well beyond mental health. This person told me that, you know what, um, I wish I had something when I was younger, uh, my father passed away. And I wish I had something to be able to tell people, like, this is how you can be helpful. 
this is what you shouldn't do. This is what I'm dealing with. If a, if a, if someone comes to work or comes to school and they're not themselves, but they don't want to have a whole conversation, but people know that they're withdrawn, so this is a way to sort of jumpstart. People who have medical issues. So this person told me, well, you know, uh, someone's sick and they, they're just finished uh, chemo treatments. You can share it that way. This person wants to give their the, the, the bus driver or the teacher that their child uh, is on the autism spectrum or has a seizure disorder. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. This one has social anxiety. This one, this one has even allergies. It could be, it could be so many different applications that people, yeah, I, I know someone who works with the special needs community and he was like, he was telling me how said Shmuel, like this could be so useful for parents, for the people themselves. We all know that, you know, people will not understand or not just have the education and they can say things that are quite silly and insensitive without really realizing it. But I, it's more about, it's more than the cards. It's not so much about the card itself. It's about the idea of creating more conversation and dialogue. I hope that one day, you know, right now we're giving out cards for free through our website because I just want people to be able to use them. I hope that it grows and I, I would love to do like a, like electronic version of it. Um, if, you know, once I have, you know, funding for it, we're trying to make it, it's, again, this is not about the cards per se. We're trying to encourage people online to uh, use the hashtag. Now, you know, share how you shared something. It could be uh, with the card, a picture of the card or just your story of how you shared something, was it helpful, how did it pan out, and that will, I, I hope, will inspire others to sort of go, you mentioned bravery earlier, and it certainly takes bravery to share. And I, I, I didn't have in mind that people should use these cards or go, you know, share with everybody, everybody on the subway, here, here's a card, you have a card, you have a card, of, of everything that's going on, uh, doing it with the people that are important in your life, that play a role in your life, your child's life, your family's life, and but also, again, we're encouraging people to do it online because if someone sees somebody else going out on a limb and saying, hey, well, I shared, I, I had my own now you know moment, and you know, it changed. People were more helpful at work or understanding at work or at school or whatever it is. And, and it was quite helpful, then other people are going to see that, and they're hopefully going to take the baton, and, and maybe one person in their life, they're going to go out on a limb and share something that they're dealing with. Again, it doesn't have to be the most tremendous thing that, that they're struggling with. It could be a, a, a simple medical uh, issue or something going on in their life, and it could be something mental health-related. So, I mean, I hope... I've gotten really good feedback so far, and the question now, are people going to run with it? And if it grows, then we can make more um, versions of it where people can use the electronic versions and, and, and um, customize it to exactly what they want to say on it and things like that. And I just hope that it's meaningful to people. Yeah. And where could somebody go if they wanted to find your cards or find you? Yeah, sure. So our website is cbtbaltimore.com and if they just go to the site it's for the now you know cards it's uh, cbtbaltimore.com forward slash now you know 
Um, we are we have a Facebook page for CBT Baltimore. We're on Instagram and Twitter. So they can contact us or connect with us on either of those, any of those platforms. But to order the cards, they go to that uh, cbtbaltimore.com forward slash now you know, and they could get some free cards and we'll send them out to them. Yeah, it's a fabulous initiative. And it, and it sounds like, you know, it's not just for mental health. It could really be any conversation starter, anything that, you know, might be a little challenging to share, really just, you know, an, an easy, effective way of, of you know, breaking through that initial, um, you know, that initial barrier that prevents us from, from, you know, maybe opening up a little bit more to the people in our lives. Yeah, I hope so. I really do. Yeah. Um, and if anyone is struggling and is looking for resources or referrals for mental health providers, reliefhelp.org, or okclarity.com. You can contact them or you can go online um, and look, you know, either get connected with a therapist or scroll through, uh, and in the case of okclarity.com, you can scroll through therapist profiles. So please, if anybody is struggling with anything um, that is difficult for them and they want to meet with a mental health practitioner, we always encourage that. Um, Shmuel, thank you so much again for being here, sure. for all the work that you're doing to raise awareness and, and all of your work um, with individuals who are struggling with OCD and all sorts of different types of um, mental health conditions. You're very welcome. If I, could, if I could quickly add another resource, if someone's mm -hmm. specifically looking for an OCD, tra uh, a trained OCD therapist, if they go to the IOCDF, dot uh, org website you can also search through their directory as far as therapists who are particularly trained uh, to treat OCD oh thank so, you so much that's yeah that's thank you thank amazing. you very much for thank you for for what you're doing and helping uh, the public out and the community out and I, I appreciate you having me on all right thanks so much and that's our show everyone join us next week at 9 p.m. Uh, at jtriberadio.com thanks for being with us Thank you.